Andy is a student of theater and tea, a medical massage therapist, a former organizational coach, a conscious kingster, and the teacher of European and Japanese rope bondage, living in Stockholm, Sweden, and working around Northern Europe. In his own words, I work with both groups and individuals, and I love that the world is allowed to be complicated, because that makes every meeting unique. My time in Japan engraved into me the presence, passion, and embrace for the glimpse of Zen that exists in every movement of life, and this I gladly share with you in a session, workshop, or with a cup of tea. In the stillness between moments, life happens. Pause. Witness. Hello, everybody. I'm so pleased to introduce you today with me for a new episode of the Healer Hub podcast, Andy Buru. Hi, Andy. How are you? Hello there. I'm great. Thank you. So we were just discussing the provenience of your surname, um, and it would be great if you could tell the story and we would actually start there. Mm, the story of me? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, um, so I'm Swedish. Um, I grew up in like this kind of super equal um, 1969 um leftish socialist kind of country um and at quite a young age i got interested in bdsm and power and polarity um and spent like my youth from like i don't know 16 17 up to like 18 19 20 more older like getting into bdsm and then i spent some time working in japan i got in contact with rope bondage there um and then that kind of led me into the world of Tantra and kind of spirituality and like the world of like healers and healing. Um, and during this kind of period, I was all, always been very like curious about like, like human sexuality in relationship to power, mostly. Um, and then kind of as years went by, yet went by, I got more and more in contact with um, people that had kind of traumatic experiences connected to power and sexuality, which I think is not everyone, but I think it's like a very common like place where trauma stems from. Um, and I got asked, like, because normally in like the world where I come from, in like the BDSM world, like you try to you try to stay away from trauma. Like you don't. That's the place you don't want to go. It's that's why you have the consent negotiation and like your stop word to kind of stay away from um, the kind of maybe more vulnerable parts of it. Um, and when I got asked by people, like, hey, but can you tie me anyway? Because I'm curious about it. Like, like I know my trauma or like I can have my friend there. And I was like, first I was like, no, 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 this is like, it's too scary for me. <laughs> I don't want to go there. But um, then I started to do it slowly but surely, um, like with friends of friends or someone recommended someone. And like over the past, is it 10, 15 years, maybe? Maybe 10 years is the most accurate. Um, I started to offer paid session with like rope bondage as some kind of therapeutic modality. Yeah. Um, and then in parallel to that, being a teacher of like this kind of more Japanese, more like bondage, I more focused on erotics and and being in the world of BDSM. So I'm like, kind of with one foot in the Tantra spirituality world, one foot in the BDSM world, and one foot in the kind of more kind of therapeutic world. Mm. And this is what I find really profound in your work because you are drawing from Tantra and Taoism and Shibari, which is the art of um, of using ropes uh, and it seems from Japan. And then you kind of wrapped everything with the ball of healing. Um, and then mm. the, the, docu the, the documentaries and then the, um, the videos that you created and it it really it really strikes me the softness and the tenderness and the vulnerability that come through in your sessions would you speak a bit about the um, power dynamics and why women who have been through 
I also believe that everybody has has been through flavors of of trauma, and that's just normal and inherent to the to the human nature. So, going back to my question, um, how are you holding the the people that you are working with in a um, rope therapeutic uh, bondage session? Mm, yeah, um, I mean, I think it's important to like like make distinction on like what kind of client it is because I have very different types of clients. Like I usually split them into three different categories. Um, like either I have people that would say that are traumatized, that are really traumatized, that has probably been the victim of like repetitive abuse and um, like the horrible stuff. And then I have some clients that are more like they are they are like successful women in like a patriarchal system where they are fighting hard, probably harder than any man to be, yeah, to, to get through. And like, they're looking for a place to let go of control. They, they are, they don't, they're not like the rape victim. So they're not the one with abusive parents. It's just like, it's a, yeah, it's like the, what do I say? Like it's the, um, the masculine woman in the masculine world in a way. Mm. And then I get some people who come to me, they are just kind of curious about their sexuality. Um, and they say, okay, so BDSM is a thing, rope bondage is a thing, and like, what do I do? Do I go on Tinder and I write in my Tinder profile, like, looking for dominant man? Or do I go to, like, a bar and look for the kind of guy who looks scary and try to pick him up? But, like, how do I kind of get to explore um, BDSM and sexuality, like, on my own terms? And then it's not really healing at all. It's more like some kind of private um, investigation into who you are and like how you work. And then some people are, of course, like a mixture of all of these three at the same time. Yeah. Um, so for the people that are like really traumatized, um, I would say what they do is super soft um, because just like being alone with a man in a room again is a big thing. Like just being allow yourself to be held is a big thing. Um, so, so it's, it's like the bondage part of it is, it's not so complicated. It's the complicated part is like the interhuman relationship. It's like wrapping a body in ropes while holding them. So, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with, um, like gaining power back of your own kind of intimate experience. Because like 99% of my job is to listen to them because like someone obviously was abused, was not listened to or um, so kind of learning that teaching a person that I will listen to them and that their experience matters. Um, yeah. And then like in this process, what we do is that I tie them in rope. Like someone joked once, like you don't need bondage to do this. You could do this with just your hands in a way. But then of course, since like I have this background in like Japanese rope bondage and it's like passion of mine, then it becomes natural for me to use this as my modality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a lot, has a lot to do with this kind of um, empowerment and kind of being listened to and learning how to kind of to come back to your body in like in this experience and like knowing what you like and what you don't like um, knowing should I be like shit scared of this or should I feel safe in this place because like if you have a traumatized nervous system it's kind of out of tune in a way um, it gets triggered by things maybe it shouldn't be triggered by and it doesn't get triggered by things it should be triggered by. So it's like kind of retuning your nervous system and finding like um, a safe environment to do that in. And then like we need to have some kind of like some kind of polarity or some kind of play. Because if we want to explore the subject of power and eroticism, then we need some kind of thing that touches upon that. And then for me, like bondage is the perfect way of doing it. Yeah. yeah. As you're mentioning this, um, I was thinking about the safety and going in and out of safety. And for somebody who has been through assault, for example, it's extremely, it can be very easily re-traumatizing being in a space where uh, they maybe for the external regard, it is a safe space, but for a nervous system Mm -hmm. that has been traumatized, it can be easily re-triggering and I imagine that being in the context where in your energy, not only in your space, you create that safety and then 
you you give sovereignty to the person that you are working with for them to be safe and then feel unsafe and then re it's it's like pendulum safety and safety safety and safety mm. yeah yeah and i think it's also that um like i have a few friends and i talk to many psychiatrists like over the years that kind of work more with like talking based therapy and for me that seems much more violent and brutal because then you kind of go back and you retell the, the traumatic experience and you're asked to come back there and feel it again i mean of course there's more like modern forms of um a therapy that's more like this like exist acceptance and commitment therapy when you don't go back to the to the shit in a way but for me like i don't have any reason to have someone relive the same experience it's more like um, we do something that brings them into contact with this kind of with what is scary what's kind of is triggering the nervous system and then we back off mm-hmm. so it's kind of like retraining the nervous system that this is not dangerous in a way yeah but yeah of course you need to trust me i mean otherwise it doesn't work of course yeah and and also trust themselves in that in that context mm. um i imagine that you know about this book the body keeps the score it uh, <laughs> it became yeah. a bestseller because it, it resonated like for so many of us right it, it was um the reveal of the fact that we can go to talk therapy and talk therapy can do that much but basically through mm. talking and retelling the narrative you are just reinstalling every time that you are telling the same neuropath right whereas the trauma mm. actually lives in the body in the fascia so mm. when you go and do the body work then there is a there is a part of the trauma that is leaving the body because it's accessed there where it lives inside the body yeah yeah i mean i re- i'm really inspired by the work of a woman called judith herman and she kind of created this model of post-traumatic stress and she says like the first step is get away from the traumatizing experience it's like if you're in a destructive relationship you need to leave the relationship Mm. and then like the next step is kind of to retune your nervous system so that you kind of can exist in normal society again and then it's about learning to reintegrate into society as the third step and i'm kind of considering myself being like they're somewhere in the end of this process um so most of the clients that i receive they kind of they know their trauma quite well already and they've maybe been to talking therapy or some kind of social service to kind of get out of the destructive situation because yeah. i don't think i could take a client that is like in an active traumatic situation it's more like this part okay okay i want to date the dominant man again like what do i do to like being able to coexist with this person in a way or maybe not even a dominant man just any man i don't know yeah absolutely after after having been through trauma uh, and like you know heteronormative situation where a woman was mm-hmm. uh, yeah abused by men of course every man looks uh, looks like a potential threat right um mm-hmm. you, you you mentioned bdsm and I, um this is the first time that we're actually speaking about this uh, uh publicly on the podcast um mm-hmm. and um I was on a retreat last uh, last year in Sweden and it was a women's only retreat and we got to explore the dynamics of um of um dominant and submissive but in um in a fe- female energy kind of a context. Mm. I would love if you could touch upon uh, polarity and I know that it's such a broad <laughs> it's such yeah. a broad subject. Um, because I think that there is, um, there is, there is an, an interest in, in BDSM and power dynamics. And as you mentioned, um, also mm-hmm. maybe with uh, the feminist movement and, uh, um, where there is more space for women to actually embrace their, uh, their sexuality and speak openly about that. But then maybe there is still a lot of, uh, conditioning from the religious background, like the whole Europe, mm-hmm. a big part of, of the world that has been religiously, uh, re, uh, re- religiously conditioned uh Mm. yeah 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 i mean i think what it comes down to um is like is in the like to have two different roles or two different ways to relate that are mutually dependent on each other that kind of benefit from being you benefit from the difference to another person you can, I mean, the easiest explain, way to explain is like the leader and the follower in a dance. Mm-hmm. Like the better the follower is to follow, the better the leader can lead and vice versa. And it's kind of 
there is like an activity that both people are active in. So like, I mean, if you dance partner dance, you know that it's once you get once you get good, it's much harder to follow than to lead. Um, so like, it's it's like an active active relationship uh, where you create a a difference between you in a conscious and consensual way. Um, and then like if, if you look at the like in the in the like in the tantric world, people talk about the masculine and the feminine without connecting it to gender. In BDSM you have it like between the um, the master and the submissive or the dominant and the submissive. You have it also like by the sadist and the masochist if you talk more about like the physical experience about it. Um so you have all these different polarities that turn people on, or like that is like part of the um driving force of like um sexuality or attraction mm. um so it's it's like a way to create like a safe frame for this because like you want to be equal or maybe you do but that i i do <laughs> want to be equal like outside the play and then you want to create this kind of container where you can play with this polarity which is kind of what we don't want in the everyday life mm. um and a, f- a way also to think about this is almost like a like you make a parody of like the power games that we play in everyday life, because then we are forced to be dominant, we're forced to fight for power, um, and then we take them in a consensual way and like put them into like the frame of call it BDSM, call it tantra, or like I think this this is polarity is what people are looking for. Yeah, um, I I. Uh, so I work as a coach and I train with Leila Martin. And what mm. I find is that when things are not consciously explored, then they come out unconsciously in relationships. Mm. So all relationships have a flavor of power dynamics and dominance. And um, for myself, I found that I have a very strong sadist. And this sadist mm. would come out in relationships and I would need to inflict emotional or psychological pain um, because that's how because i didn't know how to consciously channel that right so then when you mm. take the pulsions that you have in uh, your life and you explore them consciously in bdsm then the drama that is happening in real life is no longer drama because it has been consciously addressed and played with in a in a context that is safe consensual as you said um and i i find it really really therapeutic i find it very healthy to have this yeah. type yeah i mean there is i mean i mean the first your experience echoes my experience as well like i'm a lot less interested in looking for power or fighting for power in my everyday life when i'm so used to playing with it in within like this context of bdsm and there is also like quite a lot of studies nowadays showing that people that has a bdsm background has like a more healthy relationship to power um i can send you the links and you can include them in the description of the podcast yeah Maybe people want to see. Um, it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was also thinking about what you mentioned that um, when people start with the exploration, or they just have this ping of, oh, I would actually like to engage as a, with a with a more dominant um, energy. It could be a female who is more on the dominant side, or a male, or a non-binary. Um, and uh, I, I think that. It's really, really beautiful that now we have contexts where people can explore this in a somehow professional and contained way, because I think that a lot of people think that they are practicing BDSM, but it's actually very toxic because there, mm. there are no rules and there is no, um, like no, no, uh, safety, which for me is extremely, extremely important. So your work brings people into picking into what BDSM truly is and how it actually feels instead of uh, being kids who are meeting on Tinder and then start exploring, but in a not very healthy or uh, contained kind of, <laughs> or like designed mm-hmm. way. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that is like the, um, the big challenge, I think, with BDSM. Like, how do you separate what is like um, let's see if I can say this in English in a good way. Like, what is true? Say, do you say magnificent? Like, truly evil? Like, mm-hmm. pretend like someone was like consciously doing something to hurt someone else, like mm-hmm. a rapist looking for victims. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you distinguish that from someone that makes an honest mistake 
because they are not educated enough or because they don't have proper guidance when they step into playing with power and like polarity and violence and pain and all of these things. And someone who kind of does it, I don't know, I don't want to use the word in the right way, but like in a, who, who kind of is successful in what they're doing. And like, how do you kind of distinguish this? Um, and not end up in this kind of murky water saying that like all BDSM is bad, for example, or um, yeah, that's yeah. something that often goes on in my own head. <laughs> like, how do you make this kind of separation into, yeah, how do you know in a way? And I think, but the best way to do it is to have like a community and like a, um, a community and like other peers and like education to like, to have someone to reflect upon your experience with. So you can go to retreats or workshops or sessions, or you can be online chatting with people, go to like a munch or a pub or like any way to kind of meet up with other people and kind of kind of get like a reality check on your experience um, and a way to meet like kind of like-minded people. Um, I think that is kind of what makes it safer. Um, it's yeah. kind of it, it. It always makes I think it's, it's always funny to me because a lot of people that come into the BDSM world they always say that they feel so much safer in a BDSM club than in a normal nightclub because like since this discussion has been ongoing in like in the BDSM subculture for ages maybe since it's like the nineties maybe eighties depending on how you define it it's like this continuously ongoing discussion with consent and so on so when it kind of comes sailing up in the Me Too movement and in like general society it's like yeah we have had this discussion for I don't know thirty years already because it's so important in with the kind of activities that we do and that's why I think it's like and I think it's equally important in like the big society as well yeah one hundred percent and that's I'm I'm going back to what we were mentioning um a bit earlier i i see like when people mention like make the distinction between bdsm and vanilla sex and i'm thinking mm, there is no such thing as vanilla sex there is such a thing as people being heavily conditioned to not speak about sexuality um even in couples where where i have conversations with other clients or 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 my friends and um, they need to find a subterfuge. They need to find a place where they can explore the pulsions that they have, the, the desires that they have. And when I ask them, why wouldn't it be appropriate to have these conversations with your partner? The answer mm. is, well, I would be judged. They would look at mm. me as if I'm very strange, right? So I think that the more we normalize having these discussions um, in public spaces, the more we can see what is pathological, because there are people who have pathological behavior and then they need treatment and it's not it's not at all on the normal spectrum. But I feel that a lot of people are on the normal spectrum and just because society has conditioned us so powerfully to keep what is sexual hidden and uh, in the shame and the guilt, uh, in the shadow mm. of shame and the guilt, a lot of people do not know where they can help engage with their um yeah their desires and their curiosities and that there are that there are spaces where they can safely do so instead of going on um yeah maybe apps or you know like the the the, the spaces that are more on the dark side and where they are mm. there, there isn't a lot of con consent and there isn't a lot of safety but at least there mm. is a space where people can go and explore these things right so I'm more on, okay, let's make it healthy and let's make it conscious instead of keeping people in dark corners where, yeah, you don't really have a lot of safety. Yeah, I mean, I think exactly what you put words on a few moments ago in this, like whatever you repress, mm -hmm. it will express itself somewhere else in your life. Yeah. Um, I think that's, a, I don't say, universal rule of life. <laughs> or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see it a lot, like the the most uh, consumption of porn is in most religious and sexually repressed societies. <laughs> statistics <Yeah. laughs> statistics back it up. Yeah, I was thinking about when I was listening to you, like, but maybe you can have a relationship without any polarity or any, like, pay or power if you are willing to have a relationship without passion. Like, if you kind of decide that, okay, we're just going to have kids, so we will have mechanical sex to have offspring. And then for the rest of our life, we will kind of focus on something that is not passion. Mm -hmm. 
like kind of following a religious dogma or like committing ourselves fully to work or something. But I think as soon as people start to look for passion, then you kind of come, then you come these things like with polarity, playing with power, playing with control. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah. the perspectives that we hold are our perspectives. Like my, my perspective is that of a, a white, ex-Christian, heterosexual, privileged woman. There are so many, uh, there is a spectrum so large where, of course, if you're coming from, a, a, let's say like, a, and I don't have a lot of uh, tangibility on this, an Amish community. Uh, mm. Speaking freely about sex will not, will not be on the table, right? Yeah. <laughs> <But> on the more, <laughs> on the more uh, general, like a larger part of the population, it's very interesting for me that still in 2023 we've been through so much and we've reached mm. uh, all these all these levels of tech, and we still have a lot of people who are living in with suppressed sexual energy and suppressed sexual energy leads to a lot of um, disbalance inside the body, mm-hmm. uh, imbalance inside the mind, and all sorts of quirky, unhealthy uh, ways of being in the world. And I think that that's what, like, my my deep pain comes from that. Because, of course, I also mm-hmm. have shades of that, just like everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me it's, like, easy. Like, I can see that the people who find me, that I can help them. And I can see also the people who are looking for like more passion or like a more healthy relationship to power and sexuality. They tend to get it mm. through these modalities of BDSM rope on the and Tantra in a way. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of it's good enough for me. Yeah. To kind of to kind of offer this as a some kind of service. Mm-hmm. You mentioned eroticism. So what do you what do you see eroticism as and how do you use eroticism in your practice? Mm, yeah, um, I think it's the way, the reason why I use eroticism instead of like sexuality is that because I think like what people, what most people long for is intimacy, mm-hmm. like feeling deeply connected to another person, like where I'm willing to meet another person as like an unknown we that we can kind of explore who we are together or become something new together. Um, So I think this is what people long for, to like feel connected to other people and like have this meeting that is like intimate. Um, And I think a lot of people today think that the only way to be intimate is to have sex Mm. or like to fuck in a way. I don't, sorry if I'm not allowed to say fuck on (laughs) you. No (laughs) <laughs> no um, yeah. So I think the only way people look for it, not only everyone, but many people find intimacy in sex today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of want to kind of bring up that like the attraction and desire and fantasy is like bigger than just sex. I mean, especially if you look in the world like a rope bondage, it's very rarely leads to like penetrative sex. Um, it is like an exploration of the eros or the, of the eroticism or like what you're attracted to, what you're turned on by, um, to the taboos, to the shame, to the fears. So it's, for me, it's like much more in the realm of like, um, like self-development or some kind of spiritual path. Um, what word do you want to put on it? So that's why I kind of like this word eroticism because it kind of touches upon that we have these erotic beings inside of ourselves that is attracted to something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and creating the arena to explore that. That's why I like the word. Yeah. I wonder, are you familiar with Esther Perel's work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, her knows. saying, what is it like? Whatever we uh, protest against during the day is what we fantasize um, during the night or something like this <laughs> uh, she's one of my heroes <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's beautiful because she brought it uh on on the social agenda where she brought it she brought eroticism to uh to light and i i really appreciate the the view that she holds about foreplay and how foreplay is not something that happens five minutes before penetrative sex but it's all along creating this erotic encounter with your partner and with the world also. Because Eros is life force too, right? And we have Eros within our bodies. And then again, when when you do not allow it to flow, it, it kind of gets transmuted in more unhealthy types of behaviors. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really much think it's like, it's like a story that you tell together with your partner mm. and it's like told over the whole re- span of a relationship with another person and that you kind of come together and you have this kind of ritualistic practice of explore, like ex- sharing your autism. But then kind of when you're not acting it out together with your partner, then it kind of lives inside of yourself and how you think about your partner, how you treat yourself, what you daydream about, what you dream about at night. Like it, it goes through all of you in a way. Um, yeah. I don't remember who said this. I think it was in a book about wonder and they kind of argue like, I mean, maybe you could live without humor. Like you don't need humor to survive, but if you have humor, like life is nicer in a way, in many ways. Uh, and I think it's a little bit with eroticism as well. I think it's perfectly possible to survive without having an erotic life but i think if you do life is better and like there is no reason why we should not allow ourselves to have this mm. i do wonder see like for me this just doesn't sit well, <laughs> doesn't sit well with me again maybe because i'm privileged i was born in 86 so of course the, the, the I, I i only knew the idea of romantic love you know i haven't lived when back in the 40s when i had to sign the social contract that i will give my room yeah. for for shelter you know so, yes. <laughs> not even because i think that my grandparents also my grandparents uh, were uh, yeah, like we're in a love marriage, like in a romantic, in a romantic marriage. But uh, Esther Perel speaks about how romantic love is a very new concept, right? Before mm-hmm. marriage was the basis of the social of society, because it was a social contract, and it still is in so yeah. in so many ways. But I feel that, uh, and I'm I'm grateful that you mentioned that. I feel that a lot of a lot of people. Um, Again, I think that is the the repression of the sexual energy view equal sex with intimacy, and and gaze is such an intimate way of connecting with somebody, breathing next mm. to others, sharing a context. I know that you organize also group um, workshops, right? So mm. sort of intimacy in which people witness each other and witness you mm. um, when you are when you are. Um, doing the shibari work and witness the other person having that experience and I, I feel that that's something that is deeply intimate and deeply bonding people over this yeah. moment yeah totally I mean it's the most intimate thing that I found so I think that's why I kind of got so nerdy about it and why I stick with it yeah 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 <laughs> You also have a background in theater um, and you mentioned at one point that doing the kind of work that you are doing is also staging in a certain mm-hmm. in a way. So would you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, um, like I had for 15 years, like a normal like career job that I then kind of also in the beginning as an engineer, but then as a coach and like an organizational person in the end. Um, and after I left that to kind of dedicate my life to this kind of research about like uh, sadomasochism and eroticism in a way, um, I also started to study things on the side. Um, so then I studied theater directing for two years um, because I wanted to learn about this kind of storytelling aspect of eroticism and like this, like what you were into, like being how to be seen and how to kind of be validated in who we are. Because like also when you talk about like social shame and stuff like that, like of course, like you could practice BDSM, but if you only do it in your own bedroom where no one knows about it, then there's still kind of this shame aspect around it. So like a big thing of it's not part of my therapeutic work, but more part of my like artistic endeavors in life is to create this kind of performative sexual spaces, like a play party where people can come and meet like-minded people and kind of have a place to be seen in their sexuality and see other people and be inspired by other people. Um, so it's just something that I'm like super nerdy, passionate about and like how you create these spaces in the, in the best way because they are kind of on the borderline or in the borderland between like kind of the dream like and the surreal in a way because I think the fantasy and the eroticism is where a dream like and surreal. It's not always very concrete. Mm-hmm. And how do you kind of create a space for people to step into that? Um, and it has everything to do with like how you create ambience with kind of live musicians, um, with lighting, with like building the room between rituals of entering, um, 
like protocols now to relate to each other, picking the right people. Like it, it's for me, it's like it's a whole. Uh, um, it's like painting and painting a picture with like so many colors to pick and materials to pick from to kind of build this experience for other people. And for me, in a way, like if I should, like if I say, like the therapeutic work is that what I do with the people that maybe are the most hurt or that are in the most need for help in a way it's focused to create the safest possible thing the thing that i can what i can stand behind as much as possible that this works it's no i don't gamble with you in a way uh, but if i want to go completely to the other side and like like how far can i push it in my creativity in my like personal expression then comes this thing it's almost kind of theatrical play parties yeah where the, where the goal is to take a take a, a risk, take a leap of faith, and hopefully like discover some new aspect of yourself. Mm. I often think about like the two differences between therapy and art, because like for me in therapy, the, the goal is to do the thing that you know that works, the thing that you kind of there's there's as little gambling there as possible. But when you do art, it's you gamble as much as you dare or as much as you can afford, because it's about discovering something new. Yeah. So whenever say someone says that they do both, and someone says that they, they do healing art, then I get very worried because I'm like, okay, are you doing both the maximum gambling and the maximum safety at the same time? Um, so yeah, so I do try to do both of this, both the therapeutic part and the kind of art mm. part, and not mix them too much. Yeah, and I, I imagine that the, the people who are involved in the art aspect, they are everything is consensual and very clear and very transparent, and they agree agree to that. And maybe for for some people, um, I know that in my therapeutic journey, the first time that I I shared that with my therapist, I felt so, um, you know, there is that combination of shame but also pride of letting that aspect of you be seen, right? And it's, mm. it's so it's so healing to 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 let it out and i felt that i was such a terrible person for having that aspect and then when my therapist validated and held it and i was like oh okay then it's actually not that bad right um so i imagine that this is what happens also with the people that you work with where where they are witnessed um in the process mm -hmm. of showing themselves and being in their healing journey and showing aspects of, of themselves and actually being celebrated uh being mm -hmm. adored for for these aspects in a public and artistic setting yeah yeah i mean i think for me like a retreat is somewhere in between mm. it's kind of a more it's a more safer space because then we're doing exercises and rituals and practices that i'm quite sure that this works well for most people so like so it's kind of a place that is safer than everyday life like going to a nightclub because there's more focus on the container and the safety and like creating the right group and so on um, but it's, there is less safety than in the therapeutic session because then there is only focus on the safety um so i think like for me the retreat is like between the kind of completely weird art experience and uh, completely safe um therapeutic experience mm -hmm. i hear so there is a space where actually a lot of people could find <laughs> find themselves yeah. safe which is the retreat and then you have the artistic part which is more for people who are really ready to be full out and then the therapeutic part which is more for people who have been who need a lot of support and one-on-one -on -one and actually be held in a very safe mm. and uh, contained kind of space yeah. yeah yeah that's a good way to sum it up you work with men and i found it uh really really beautiful you okay you come from sweden so probably it's a different uh dynamic with the I always find myself uttering heteronormative things, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to voice it in a way that uh, that is um, that respects non-binary. So you work with male bodies, and yeah. I want to know more about that experience. <laughs> yeah, um, as you say, it's I find it so interesting because, like, the definition of what it is to be a man. And with this also non-binary um, aspect of life starting to come more into it and like exactly what kind of space I provide for men, it actually changes quite a lot in different like contexts. Mm. Um, sometimes I'm in the very heteronormative world of like Tantra. And then it's more like brothers tying brothers 
And it's kind of from competition to compassion mm. into kind of more kind of queer spaces where it's more about like questioning what it is to be a man and kind of working with like concepts as a like homosensuality. Like maybe I'm not going to have sex with other men, but I can like enjoy how it feels to be touched by another man because maybe he's big and strong and maybe he smells in another way. So like I can really like this kind of masculine male male body in a way or like what you considered it's like it doesn't matter what people have but kind of like how they what the they consider but it's more like but like what is the quality of the body in a way mm. um into this like kind of breaking down the idea of like like uh, what it means to be a man like i, I think like another touch for this i think it's very interesting personally like I notice, like when I when I'm in when I'm being a man, I have a very hard time being a bitch. Mm-hmm. I have a very hard time being selfish as a man because I'm very caretaking in my kind of masculine man, whatever I was grown up, brought up to be. So it's really really interesting for me to kind of what happens if I kind of let go of this archetype of a man that I have in front of me and like try to be like a sadistic bitch in us instead. And like, um, so I kind of work with men in all of these different kind of. Um, in this different scale. Um, I think it's also like because 75% of my clients are women. So that is where I'm most secure in what I know and where it's, where it's very clear what I do. I think with men, it's still like a much more of like an exploration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, curi- yeah. I'm, I'm curious if, if with men, it touches more upon who you are and your identity and it could be more challenging from that space too. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is that the way I teach bondage, that it's a lot of focus uh, on vulnerability and on slowness and on feeling. So some men who don't know me, they think that they will kind of be put down by a big, powerful person who is going to dominate them and humiliate them. Because um, this is like the the picture of like domination they have from like coming from like hierarchical society. Or from sports, maybe where like the one who dominates, the one who beats the other one down in the boxing ring, um, and coming to a place where kind of where domination is kind of soft and listening and being present with each other and being vulnerable, um, that surprises many people. Yeah, um, yeah and also this, also like um, what you like. Um, because I think when you remove intimacy, so it doesn't have to be about fucking, that means that you can be intimate in more different ways. And like the time intimacy that I find between men or masculine people, uh, it's so different depending on like what event and what kind of structure it is. Um, I think that is also super interesting because I think it allows people to 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 bond or like to to share intimacy in a way that they didn't do before and like find out that it could be so enjoyable um like if i should talk take some of these like super heteronormative like examples like guys who claim like 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 having like a big man touching me is like he's so much stronger than my little girlfriend and she can't grab me or hold me this way or i can't put all my weight on my my partner because i'm so much bigger than them so like having there's like so many like of these aspects that kind of becomes available to people um as soon as you kind of disconnect intimacy from the fucking part in a way But then this gets even more complicated because I also, of course, invite homosexual people into my space. So they are obviously turned on, might be, on by what's going on. And like how do you deal with this is also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking about the conditioning that so many men received, and I think that you see it a lot in sexuality with holding back, because so many of again, um, I will, I will take a heteronormative um, perspective, but I, I imagine that even um, homosexual men who who didn't um, share that they were homosexual, they were brought up in a similar way, which with the concept of uh, what we now call toxic masculinity, right? Like a non-emotional, constantly showing uh, power and force, even if that's just a facet to protect. So I imagine that when they come into your space and there is actually 
the container of you can explore aspects that are so unfamiliar for you mm-hmm. will get a little bit oops <laughs> um yeah yeah i mean some people are deeply touched by it um by being allowed to be vulnerable and be seen some people think that it's lame mm-hmm. <laughs> or like that they're like what kind of this is not real domination because you don't beat me down with a stick in a way mm-hmm. um so yeah i, I think that mm, yeah well i don't i mean i don't I, like it, it's also like i don't think i have enough people to have like a clear opinion it's so different every time um like because i create also these spaces from everything in like very like artistic spaces to like very tantric spaces to more queer spaces more bdsm spaces and it's also like so different so it's like like what it is to be a man and like who is attracted to this it's yeah it really changes all the time mm. Right. I have this dream. There is like a, a, a gay tantra festival in the UK, and I would love to go there and teach there for like a week. I think it would be um, so interesting. Um, yeah, <laughs> manifest it. <laughs> Bring yes, it. <laughs> Bring it to that's why I'm speaking out here now. Maybe there is one of the organizers of the gay tantra festival in the UK is listening to your pod. Yeah, that would be great. Actually, that would be great. Um, I, 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 I can catch myself also being interest, interested in, in labeling and finding, um, somehow a spectrum of normality and something that we can agree on. And I think it's really beautiful what you brought into the discussion. Every experience is so unique and so special. Um, and then we have, of course, traits. Like I, I'm going back to to what I was saying. I think that's a lot. Oh, of- but let me take. I can take a little bit more, like uh, some general cases to kind of become more a bit more concrete. Um, mm-hmm. Like I mean, I think the men that I mostly meet. I mean, either it's men that are kind of bored with this kind of um, with this idea of what it is to be a man, because they get to hear it's toxic to be a man. Um, they and then some women seem to want them to be dominant in the bedroom, but they don't know how to switch from one to the other. So they're kind of they're kind of okay. Like I don't have energy, and I don't have like I can't care about this male masculine dominant stuff. So just I always want to let it go, and I want to surrender. I want to feel my body. I want to focus to be on like my my experience of letting go of control in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so these guys are very common. Um, and I think like going down that path, I think everyone, both men and women and others can have like a great exploration of like down in that of letting go control and not trying to have power. Um, then I think there is another type, um, uh, people who want to learn or men or others uh, who want to learn to be, um, to be dominant and like kind of because when you're dominant, you need to balance between holding space for the other person or like taking care of them, making sure that they like you, but also being selfish and like following your own desire and your own kind of, um, yeah, desire is probably the best word for it. Um, to follow your own kind of impulses and the more deviant or the more perverted your impulses are, of course, the more, um, vulnerable it becomes like what you shared about sadism, for example. If you would tell your um, your your therapist, like, yeah, I'm like, I really like to eat strawberries when I'm having sex, it wouldn't be very vulnerable because maybe everyone does that. But when you tell them, oh, yeah, I really like to be sadistic when I'm in my personality, then then that's what's vulnerable. So, like, the more outside the norm, the more queer, the less straight you walk, the less you walk the straight line in a way, the more vulnerable it becomes of being selfish and explore expressing this kind of deviant or colorful or other side of yourself Mm -hmm. um so learning to balance these two like how do i hold space for someone and make them feel safe and supported so they can dare to submit and surrender to me and how do i at the same time um express my own like dominance and how that may look and maybe it does not look like it does in the movies or what i'm taught in society by like big muscular men standing there screaming at people like like maybe my dominance is much softer than this mm. Mm. and i as, as you were talking about this i was thinking this is probably why i love bdsm so much and i love it in concept in in theory because i feel that this is what life should be 
like a constant negotiation and constant being in touch with your own body, with what is happening in the space, with what is happening on your partner's side or depending on what the what is the context created the other people involved in the scene and uh yeah like keeping this this awareness and this presence right and that i think that a lot of beauty stems from there of um how do i express fully who i am and what i feel now while being engaged with the other's experience and also holding and also um revering uh having respect for uh, for them hmm. yeah. <laughs> i think there's one thing we should bring up when we're talking about the like the theme of like bdsm and maybe also shibari and rope bondage and so on because also when when the theme of the pod is like healing in a way mm-hmm. uh, because i think it's important to like make this distinction about like um, what one is looking for in their experience. Like, is it healing that I'm looking for or is it kind of perversion? Or like, where are you on this scale? Because in what I notice in this kind of, I don't say what you're saying, this sub-community or this subculture is that it gets start to get mixed up things. Mm-hmm. Because like, for example, right now, when I'm in Japan for my like uh, yearly vacation, um, where like the bondage that I come from um, that I kind of am so passionate about um like here it is like this kind of perverted taboo and expression and obviously the darkest of our, our soul in a way but but i mean it's not really aimed to be healing at all it's a it's a way to kind of explore the forbidden side of your sexuality mm-hmm. um and kind of when you, and not kind of mixing that up with kind of uh, when you are actually creating a therapeutic space for someone so, like, because of, uh, it's important for me when I speak about it, because, like, I have my Japanese teachers. And, I mean, for them, it's like, yeah, we want to keep, like, um, Shibari and BDSM and Kimbaku kind of perverted, dirty, hidden, underground, like it is in this background. And if I tell them that, yeah, I also do this as a healing, like, modality, they would, like, look at me and, like, shake their heads, like, what are you saying, talking about? And if I start to bring in spirituality in the whole thing, they was like, yeah, but when I tie up my partner, then I have to turn my Shinto uh, spiritual statue away because it's not allowed to see what's going on. Mm. So like in that world, it, the goal was never to make it healing in a way. It was like an exploration of, of the dark eros in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you kind of start to come into the world of Tantra, then it kind of starts to mix with spirituality and kind of doing for some greater personal development exploration that we have been talking a lot about. And then when you take it even one step further, you start to become, oh, this is going to even be like a healing modality. So I think it's like super important to be like, because I want to both respect my therapy clients, but I also want to respect my old Japanese um perverted BDSM people and like how do I can I kind of keep both these people um stay true to both of them at the same time because I I think there's need for both of them in a way mm-hmm. yeah and it's that's all... my rant. <laughs> sorry that's my rant <laughs> <laughs> no I think it's really, it's really great that you are bringing this because I I feel that maybe now we we brought BDSM into the discussion into the light but we are trying to like put nice pretty makeup under the spiritual or healing umbrella without uh being honest that it is for many people just a way of uh going to the depth of the darkest most perverted altered distorted side of who they are and that's okay (laughs) as long as it's consensual Mm. and the context is set for that and everybody agrees and it's safe for everybody and it's not Mm. uh illegal or pathological in that way then that's Mm. what it is but when all participants have an equal uh, level of um, <laughs> information, right? Uh, and agreement, then yeah, it is It is what it is. Yeah. Yes, I think very much what's happening, like when, like, when like, like this pods and when like the tantric community is starting to like embrace like BDSM and polarity play and rope punch and so on, it's like it makes it available to much more people. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much to learn in between them. Um, I often say that like um, when I'm teaching, because when I'm teaching to BDSM people, then I teach people tantric techniques about opening the heart, being more vulnerable, being more present, feeling more with less. 
And when I teach to tantric people, then I teach BDSM stuff. And then it's about like, how do you reach a deeper polarity? How do you do more crazy techniques? How do you kind of go deeper into your own kind of perversion or your own kind of desires and your own kind of fantasies? So I think they have so much to learn from each other. And there is this kind of really huge overlap to me, looking for presence, looking for vulnerability. So I think that is where my passion is in like overlapping these two worlds mm. and at the still time respecting both of them. I don't know if this is a Oisho uh, split that um, Oisho used to say. I don't know if it's him or somebody else. Whenever I meet a priest, he wants to talk about sex. And whenever I meet a prostitute, she wants to talk about that. So it's a little bit like that, right? <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard it before, but yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, we didn't touch and I, I, I would have loved to, to touch a little bit upon upon that. Uh, there is so much abuse in the in the tantric um, industry or in the tantric context, right? And in the BDSM, uh, in, the, in the BDSM spheres. And uh, it would have been interesting to, to touch a little bit upon that, that even in spaces that we design and uh, we, we bring the awareness and we are trying to create safe spaces because it became so available you still have power dynamics that become abusive um mm. and i imagine that you also encountered that i i had my fair share of that <laughs> yeah yeah i could talk a lot about it maybe it should be a follow-up yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> one hour of <laughs> deconspiring everybody <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about if I have like a five minutes thing to say about it. Mm. No, but I mean, I think if I should take a positive look out on it or like look at it from, see from a positive like perspective, I think that both like BDSM and Tantra was very much like kind of small activities. And that means also that they are not so, um, extended review that people don't talk about what happened in the same like in the same like to the same extent they're not they're not like being reviewed by external journalists they're not being reviewed by psychologists like they're kind of live their own little life and when things get comes like this little kind of echo chamber where kind of there's only one dogmatic idea truth that lies it's very easy for it to kind of become abusive and it's easy to become kind of inbred in a way but when it kind of starts to become more popular then like the lines get shine upon these things and then i think that this then starts to kind of expose or like maybe even define what is like an abusive practitioner and what is like a a good practitioner and what is an abusive teacher and what is a good teacher because if you look in like in because i think there needs to be like a certain amount of review or external kind of exposure about something for this discussion to happen so when this kind of thing starts to happen, I think it's like it's like a sign of that it's growing in a way. Um, and yeah, so it becomes like harder to get away with being an abusive asshole because people will talk about it. There will be forums. There will be like discussion and um, journalism and kind of ways to kind of look upon what's happening from a more critical perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we are in this in this process right now. That's my take on it. Yeah, and I, I think it comes also with a lot of responsibility on both sides because when you are dealing with a narcissist, you cannot expect the narcissist to be like, hey, I'm a psychopath narcissist uh, and <laughs> here I am <laughs> coming to your life to abuse everybody in this community. So I, mm -hmm. I learned that at the beginning, you know, when, when you come with, with the innocence and the, the curiosity, a lot of people, and this is uh, a lot on the women's spectrum because we have been conditioned to be pleasing and to not be antagonistic and so on so um it's very difficult to call out on power dynamics and say hey you are coming from an authority space here as a teacher and you are having an uh, a, a, a behavior that is that to me feels like harassment so i i do believe that it's more about educating people also around boundaries and when mm -hmm. something doesn't feel safe to know how to to go out of that and to know where you can report and um, yeah, like draw more uh, sovereignty for the individual more than expecting always the practitioner to be on their good behavior and to have rules and regulations mm -hmm. that constantly overview. I mean, like, 
the major organizations are now dealing with uh, with this, right? Like there is a lot, there are articles that are being written and uh, forums that are speaking about different practitioners um, and people have started creating more awareness. But yeah, as you said, um, as as it's as it's becoming more of a thing and more people are are being drawn to this, there are adjustments um, in terms mm-hmm. of yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes about it because one of my best friends work as a psychiatrist. Um, and of course, like in like a psychiatrist organization, mostly working with refugees um, that has come from like a war background and like the post-traumatic stress that they carry. And I mean, of course, um, she has like a like a network of peers. They have like, they cross review each other's cases. They have review boards. It's like, I don't know if this was good so that you can like submit the case so you can get reviewed. You have your manager that's kind of supervising you and helping you. Mm-hmm. Like there's this whole kind of structure around um, how to provide like help in a very challenging situation. And mm-hmm. then when you are this kind of standalone healer on your own side, you I don't have that support network, so I think it also makes it very hard to be like, um, yeah, to work in this kind of alternative uh, world of therapy or therapeutic modalities. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What motivates you to do the kind of work that you are doing? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, hmm. I mean, professionally, like with the therapeutic part of it, is because I see it helps people and that people come to me without me kind of, I'm not such a salesy person. So like I don't market myself very much for people tend to find me and kind of have this need and then it feels meaningful to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like one part of it. Um, and but then like also that uh, at since my real passion is this kind of exploration of like this kind of of sadomasochism and BDSM and eroticism and uh, tantra, so like that I can take the knowledge that I gain from there that kind of become useful for people that are in this very vulnerable position. Um, but yeah, I think I need all of these parts of it, both to do like the retreats that is more about teaching things and sharing things, the therapeutic side and the crazy artistic side. Like I, it's more like this kind of all that, yeah, that, that it can touch upon so many layers of myself and so many layers of like so many connection surfaces around me. Mm-hmm. I think that is quite interesting and that I kept go- I've been doing this for 20 years now and it just I just keep learning more and more things in a way um, and I think that is yeah it's fascinating <laughs> yeah I love it I, I can see that you are passionate about bringing together all the pieces of the puzzle so it's being of service and also embracing your natural curiosity and continuing to grow and uh, gain more knowledge so yeah I honor that mm. Where can you find Andy? I mean, I'm kind of old school, so my webpage is the best place. There's like an old school newsletter. Um, it's like a blog I write. I try to write a thousand words every week upon like what I'm interested in about. Um, and right now it's a bit slow because I'm writing a book. So I decided to stop creating new material to kind of reshape the old material. But eventually, there will be like um, a re a revisited wor- version of the work that I've been producing during the past five years on my webpage. Um, so it's like maybe five hundred pages of text around these subjects, um, and eventually it will be become like a book that you can buy in a limited edition or get for free on the internet. It might become like a podcast on Spotify. Um, yeah, it's like I make my money giving retreats and um, sessions. I don't aim to be a writer or like this will not be my livelihood, but it's kind of as a way to um, give my knowledge on somehow or push it or like make it more available. Mm. So andiburu.se, I think, is the way to go. 
Yeah. So we're going to add it in the description notes. Um, and I really like that when I, when I saw it on your, <laughs> on your website that I am, I'm planning to go off social media. So the best way to be in contact with me is by subscribing to my newsletter. It also brings a lot of autonomy to, to what you want to share as information and not being subjected to censorship on <laughs> different platforms, different social media platforms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, the, the friends I know who does the social media thing, it seems like it, I would need just as much competence in how the social media works as I need to have about <laughs> like Tantra and BDSM. And I'd much rather spend my time researching Tantra and BDSM than social media. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure. I really, really appreciated this episode. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. The best way to support the Healer Hub podcast is to review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share it with your people. Thank you so much. Deeply grateful for your support.